my relationship with art, especially, let's say, visual art, has always been sort of disconnected. You know, I, I love music. It moves me. I love dance. It moves me, you know, sometimes to tears, to whatever emotion it is I'm trying to achieve. Music and dance can bring me there. But I didn't have the same relationship with art, visual art, that is, until I saw a piece or pieces from a friend of mine. Now, by friend, I mean fast friend. And when I first met this friend, I thought that he was perhaps more tech than art because oftentimes when he speaks, it's around uh, digital platforms and interactive exhibits and things of that nature. So when he revealed, and I'm going to say revealed because it felt like a reveal, when he revealed his art, it just really, it, it, it spoke to me. But it spoke to me more from who he was and what he was communicating through the work. The work was black, it was red, it was white, it was passionate, it was sad, it was sexy, it was bold, and it made me look at this person differently because of what they were able to connect to in the art and then share it. So that was a time when art moved me. And I'm Tony Williams, and I'm joined with... Eli Koslansky. And I got to tell you, viewers, it's Eli's artwork that really moved me, almost embarrassingly so. But anyway, that's a conversation for another time. So we're here with Eli Kuzlansky, uh, a fabulous artist, um, innovator, tech person. And we are going to be talking to him about, about who he is and art moves and why we're doing this this particular podcast, why we've decided to launch this. But first, let's talk about Eli. Now, Eli, you are Brooklyn, and it shows up in your voice big yes. time. And you're from That's East Flatbush. East I mean, Flatbush, when, right, when you talk, it's like we know where you came from, who you right. are. Your voice really speaks to who you are. So talk about how East Flatbush informed your, I guess, your life your and your artistic pursuits or basically your life. Well, I think I think I can't say the neighborhood itself informed me. I think right. the thing that I loved about it or was, shaped maybe that's a better word. Yeah, shaped mm -hmm. the way. I mean, I think the thing about living in Brooklyn, grew up in Brooklyn in the early '60s, was that uh, it was adventurous. It was a wild time. You know, it wasn't too crazy a time. There was not as many, you know, problems they had with drugs and shootings that uh, a lot of places have these days. And uh, but you know, we traveled around the borough. You know, we played stickball in the street, which was fun because, you know, second base had to yell when a car would come. <laughs> and, you know, it was inventive. You know, you had, to, you had to invent games, invent toys. And, you know, I remember one day we went down to the post office, looked at the FBI most wanted list. I think we were 12 years old. There were eight of us. And decided we're going to try to catch these guys. And we started following people in the street. So, you know, we had a lot of fun. I think the other thing that was interesting about it, it was very multicultural. I was going to ask you about you know, your neighborhood. Like my neighborhood was... You know, they, we didn't live in the same neighborhood as other kind of ethnicities, but we went to school with them. We had we were friends with them, and you know, from the get go, we had you know these different influences. 
I think even growing up as a kid, there was like something that sort of stuck in my mind that sort of, I don't know if you call it an influence or not, but you know, one of the shows we used to watch was Superman. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like yes. George Reeves. You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> and, you know, then, of course, you know, as kids, we used to do things like we used to take clothespins and we used to tie towels around our necks for the capes and jump off the bed. To Everybody pigeon. did that. Everybody did that. <laughs> and But the thing about they had the, in the intro, they said leaps, buildings in a single bound. Building, leaps, buildings, single bound. Leaps, way, tall buildings. Leaps, tall buildings. Right. Leaps, tall buildings in a single bound. And something about that ability to, like, you know, take these kind of intellectual or physical leaps sort of just stuck with me from a kid. And, you know, I think, um, you know, we had a great time as kids. Now, and we also had, like, you know, of course, you know, a little complex relationship with the police, but, you know. What about your, you're, you're so broad-minded and progressive. What, did that, was that instilled via family or was that instilled by the environment that you found yourself in, in that it was was multicultural when you went to school? Yeah, I think it was both. Mm-hmm. I think in some ways, you know, I don't know if you go for, so far as saying your survival depended upon it, but I think you had to be open. Yeah. Now, another thing that really I, I find so fascinating is that you've just done so many things. You're a woodcarver, professional modern, model maker, prop maker, museum curator, director of strategy, um, draftsman, retail store manager. It just kind of goes on and on with you. Artist. Yeah, yeah. Wh- what? How? A chef. Let's not forget that. Yeah, self-transition. What? You know, are, are you just are you just a genius? Is that what is that is that what I'm hearing? No, I think I think, I think I just get bored easily. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's fascinating me, and I have a passion for doing things, so I try to do them well. Mm-hmm. But you know, I've also done things like you know, I played a concert in Carnegie Hall, believe it or not, and that was also from junior high. We were, I think that was high school. It was a high school all city band. Oh, I remember all yeah. city back yeah, in the they were day. Oh, you're dating yourself, but that's okay. Yeah, back in the day, and then we we played. <laughs> Uh, we played with the American Symphony in Carnegie Hall. The audience was kids from around the borough, which were great because, you know, usually the audiences, they politely uh, clap and stuff, but these kids were, you know, screaming from the rafters. It was a great audience. Now, you went so to... So I have a, oh, have a diverse, diverse life. You went to Cooper Union, and the last time I checked, they had an 8% acceptance rate. Yeah, so, so talk to us about how you got there, because that's really special. When, in terms of New Yorkers, to be able to go to Cooper Union is was, not yeah. something that just happens. It's because of some talent well, or brilliance. Right. That was an interesting story because it's more than just talent, mm-hmm. talent and intelligence. It was also abil- perceptual ability, you know, mm-hmm. spatial ability, things like that. And they tested that. Yeah, absolutely. And then the thing was that when I when I was graduating high school, I went to see the guidance counselor who was a pottery major at Alfred University or something. You know and Whatever, and he said not to apply. This is what his son. And I said, you know, you got to be kidding me. And I thought that was ridiculous. Why so, do you discourage? You know, because of my grades, my grades weren't oh. great. I had oh. okay grades, you know, B level, C level stuff. <laughs> and anyways, long story short, I ended up getting a scholarship, both full scholarship, both to Pratt and Cooper. And I picked Cooper because it had science and art too, and I liked that. But the test was interesting. It was like long. It was like several hours long. You sat in the great hall. And they also have things like, you know, handwriting analysis at that time. And also all these little visual puzzles. You had to determine how many cubes were in a pile. And so that tests your spatial memory, spatial ability. And then, of course, you had to draw things. Right, right. Now, when it comes to 
and just, just thinking about when you graduated, I think that you told me that you found yourself in Italy. You told me about a story about you being in a synagogue when you first. Oh, which, sure. So, so in, share in, that in Florence, story because yeah. only you can tell the story. Yeah. <laughs> well, I went to Florence you know, because that was the thing to do for classical artists. God mm-hmm. knows why. And it's a winter time. And mm-hmm. I, of course, did the thing where I had my room with all the sketches I'm making from the, from the Uffizi and stuff like that. And uh, for some crazy reason, I decided I wanted to stay there. And I saw an ad to, to for be a driver for a synagogue. Then I went to see the rabbi to go for the job. And you know, there was a couple of problems. One, that I didn't speak Italian. <laughs> I didn't have an Italian <laughs> license, and I knew nothing about the city. So he kind of gave me that look like, you know, both the people had to show up in my office. But I also had another very interesting uh, encounter, two other encounters. One is when I went to the office, I found out that you can go into the special room on the, on the bottom floor, the side entrance, and there's a little study room where that you can actually request drawings and masterpieces from the collection. And because I had, because I worked for museums, I was able to finagle uh, an appointment. And it had a little old guy, Italian guy, who was the caretaker, and you know, gave he knew enough about in every language to say certain things like you know, no pens and blah blah blah. And you know, I requested original Rembrandt drawings hmm. and Goyer etchings and that I was able to sketch from. Now you worked on ships. Yeah. Who does that? Well, people don't know what the hell they want to do in life. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, I came out of I came out of Cooper. I didn't like the work. You know, you know, I had a little shows here and there. I really didn't love the work I was doing. And you know, a sailing ship was one of the things that inspired the work I'm doing because they're these incredibly lightweight structures, tensile structures, and they move at the intersection of two cosmic forces, powerful cosmic forces like wind and, wind and wave, and uh, under tremendous stresses, you know, because you think about how much, how much energy it takes to push a ship that weighs several hundred tons with, with fabric. Uh, so I ended up going to the South Street Seaport Museum to work in the model shop. Hmm. And uh, that was the way I get a better sense of you know how these things are made and how to build models and things like that. And eventually, then of course, I ended up from that going to Greece, working in a Greek shipyard for restoring a 19th-century iron sailing bark. And how long were you in Greece? I was there for several months. Oh, okay. Now I want to just talk a little bit more about you. Now you are Jewish. Yes. How, are you religious? No. Oh, okay. Was that a personal choice, or is that basically the way that you? Well, it's interesting. You know, I'm spiritual, but I'm so. What? Is, so, yeah. what does that mean when one says that they're spiritual and not? What does that mean to you? Well, I think I orient myself to things that I do in terms of art and business or whatever it is. You know, from almost like a poetic, spiritual point of view, for better or worse. You know, I think organize. I have always have a problem with any kinds of orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. I can see mm-hmm. its value in it. I think the perpetuation of a culture and stuff and points of people having a certain, you know, practice connection with God. But, you know, when I grew up, it was, you know, we had a Hebrew teacher that we had to get up early in the morning to go do Hebrew classes. And So you did go to Hebrew school. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he hated being there. He was an old funky guy and <laughs> we hated it. We hated him. It's like, <laughs> It was bad. And, you know, the thing was, he really didn't relate anything about the beauty of the language or the culture stuff. He just had to get us to our, you know, our bar mitzvah spiel we had to do at, at the bar mitzvah. And that's what he was focused on, almost like, 
like a driving test. Right. That's what it felt like. So I didn't, I didn't have a connection to it. Is so when you speak of spiritual, talk to us. What what is it that you mean when you say spiritual? Because I hear that oftentimes that I'm religious, but I'm not incredibly that. But but spiritual I'm yeah. Religion. Well, viewer, yeah, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Yes. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think you sort of... You believe in the universe, right? Yeah, I believe in, you know, is there some kind of intelligent force that designed human beings in the universe? I mean, possibly. You know, I just think that there's all these underlying dynamics and patterns for things, you know, that are poetic and, you know. Mm-hmm. In some ways, you know, I, I don't believe necessarily believe in this. There's something called Suki Mayakai, I think is what it's called. Mm-hmm. It's this Japanese sect, if you will. Mm-hmm. And they talk about uh, look at a lot of paintings and portraits and stuff like that how like a lot of religious figures hold their hands up towards the audience and their submission is that it's divine light this idea mm-hmm. about divine light and that it comes through a group of your ancestors coming from outer space whatever who now knows well they're, they're ancestors they're some extraterrestrials in there and they're <laughs> sure. angels cosmic that, rays they're angels <laughs> they're angels out here angels yeah. are inspiring yeah they yeah, inspire us why they not? inspire us and why not yeah why not because i think that we live in a world where the unseen is more powerful than the seen yeah. you know that's just my my belief were you a rebel it sounds like you were a rebel I was I was a complex child. <laughs> you know, I remember having conversations with cops at Cooper Union. Of course, I was a bit of a wild child. I, when I think of art, I think of especially visual art. I think about the importance of being able to use your hands. And now we're moving into a time where it's technology, and we're using the computer as quote unquote a pencil. I don't know why that is so hard for me to accept yeah. as bona fide art. Can you help to broaden my thinking around that? Yeah, well, I think it's the artisanal aspect of it, which also sort of touches on its commercial value to a certain extent, one of a kind. And I think there has been, and still is to a large extent, this idea about the primacy, primacy of the handmade, you know, this, the personal touch to a certain extent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's it's the I don't know how you describe it, but it's also there are sensibilities and ability and things you can make that can bring that into digitally fabricated things, you know, either through curvature or placement or whatever it is. It still has that sort of you know artisanal flavor to it, and uh, so it doesn't get lost. At the same time, you also see a lot of work that's digitally produced that's clever. And you see this in architecture and art and sculpture, but it's soulless. You know, it doesn't have that sort of vive, if you will, that sort of connection to people. In one of your pictures, and I'm hoping that you'll recall it since I, I don't have it here in our studio, you there was a hand and it was a fingernails and there was there were figures. How did how did you create those pieces? Were those uh, computer renderings, or were they? How did how did it happen? Well, those I know, I know this piece you're talking about in particular, well, but pretty much the whole series, yeah, the series had the same yeah. fl- flavor. Well, they're same. they're they're a combination of hand drawn and, and digitally produced, and digitally post process. It's you know it's a proprietary process that you know I don't. Oh, you can't share no, it. Oh, 
Oh, okay. But the thing okay. about it is that it's a combo. Right? right. So there's an element of it that's like digital finger painting and an element of then, mm-hmm. you know, working with the overall shadings and colorations of it to certain extent. Well, it's really, really beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Because I've shared um, your work with a number of people who always want to know who you are, where did this come from, what does this mean? So the idea that your work speaks to people on such a profound level makes me say to you, show it. Yeah, yeah, we're working on it. (laughs) Okay. Actually, it's in progress. But the the thing about, I think you're talking particularly about the prints, Mm -hmm. these these red Mm -hmm. series prints, blue series prints, which are very Japanese-esque, if you Mm -hmm. want to say, because they're gestural brushstroke looking in red, black, gray, blue, things like that. And uh, the thing is that they are quick studies for sculptural pieces to push really the envelope of what I'm doing with the stainless steel tubes and rods. I find, what is what would be your plan for the stainless steel tubes and rods? What would you be looking, where would you show something like that? Is that public art? What would that, where would that find a natural home so that people can in fact see this work well a lot of it a lot of it's geared for public art mm-hmm. but okay. there, there are versions of it and scales of it that could work in private collections and suspend or stuff like that but they're they're really in some ways these experiments in architectural structures on one one level another level they're also like precision in, instruments because they do things like diffract light in a very precise way and because they're and now they're rods on a smaller scale than a larger scale. They'd be tubes that you also can use them as chase way for fluids or lighting power, you know, air, things like that. When I first saw those pieces, what came to mind was the Hall of Science. Right. Yeah, they're you kind know, of technical looking. I felt that it could really find a home in something because of all that one can learn by looking at them. You know, it's right. not just... A feast for your eyes, but there's so many other dimensions to the work. Yeah, they're they're mercurial because they don't mm-hmm. look. First of all, they're they're, look, they're highly responsive to the light conditions, so they they diffract light in the sense that uh, it's a semi-polished surface, so it doesn't necessarily re- reflect the environment totally. The other thing, it does something interesting, which is called interference patterns, right? Commonly known as mores. And what's interesting about that is that it's inspired by the cross-hatching and Renaissance art. You know, the function about the fact that when you do cross-hatching, it sort of blocks out and darkens certain areas. And traditionally in Renaissance art, that's been in traditional drawing, it's been used to describe light and form, right? But in this sense, it's almost like a tertiary rendering system or depiction system in the sense that it doesn't do any of that. And because it works with interference patterns, they're not shadow, but the total absence of light. Because what's happening is the light waves are canceling each other out. Right? They're also incredibly accurate because they use them for things like accuracy of chips in manufacturing. Right. So they're like, they're half, like a, a millionth of an inch in accuracy. And they're also used in space telescopes to align several different telescopes for an object in space. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, they're really interesting. It's the, this field is called inter- interferometry. Hmm. The ability to measure interference patterns. Wow. So that's embedded in the work. It's not the whole part of the work, but that's like a, an interesting aspect of it. Why that aspect? Why I don't did know. you why did you I bring just, that into art? Or is that is that something you got from the quantum? No, no, no. From it's the unified the, field. 
No, that's just, you know, some way. I like them because as you move, first of all, it's like, it's it's totally different from the way people has been using light and form in sculpture. And it's, so it's really unconventional. The other thing to really do it right, you have to you have to use a certain amount of digital fabrication because it has to be incredibly accurate. And the third thing is they change a lot. They, and according to light condition, as you move around them, they move, they move with you. Right. Now, as an artist, though, what do you find most challenging with work like this? You know, I'm listening to fabrication, and there's the manu- there's a process right. in terms of making it. What, what's the what? What is it that you find challenging in terms of getting this work out? Uh, I don't find a lot of things challenging with getting it out because you know I have a tremendous background in fabrication. I've okay, on, so you're able to. Oh yeah. Okay. I've All right. On, so he's hooked up. Well, I've worked on multi-million-dollar exhibits because I used to be director of technology of a major museum design company, and you know we've done projects with restoration of 19th-century sailing ships where we were building like these large steel, these large steel fittings, and you know so it's building stuff is not the challenge. The challenge is that. And here's the interesting thing about the prints. Now, the prints, if you look at them, they're very gestural, very poetic, very loose, you know, very textural. Right. But in some ways, that's the ultimate vision of what I think the pieces could be. Closing that gap between these things that are highly structured, you know, in tensile structures, et cetera, to what they could be and what's embedded in the prints, that's the biggest challenge. But, you know, talking to people about it, getting it out there, creating the stuff, figuring out how to build stuff, that's like breathing. Now, and this this particular question, I, I'm wondering if I need to ask it, but uh, you're a bit of a think tank guy. A think tank <laughs> guy? Yeah, you're, you do a lot Sound of like thinking. Sounds like only 400 pounds. You, you do a, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of water. <laughs> right. I think of, you know, you, when you're creating from your metals, there's a ton of thought going into all levels of it. Right. When you produce work that is um, the, the prints that you produce the, right. that what, what's going on then you know is it are you thinking when, when you did that red no. series is that is that thinking is that feeling where where does that come very little from? thinking about them about mm-hmm. yeah it's all intuitive oh, ah yeah. intuitive and the other thing too is that in, in a lot of ways it's, it's interesting in some ways because they're the direct opposite of what the, what the stainless steel things are it is because they're impre- right. the, the drawing method is very imprecise incredibly imprecise. So it's a way to balance out this kind of very structured, tensile structure thing I'm doing with stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Which is not the only thing I'm going to be doing. It's just one, you know, there's a series of other stuff I'm doing with laser cut plywood and, you know, things that are more looser, if you will. So when do you find the time to do this in that you also have your own company that that is in the, uh, you, you can speak about your company. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. But but to answer the first question okay. first, all right. Sorry, mm. I design I design the art practice in a way that it's transportable, so that I can look at the pieces on Dropbox and Pinterest and other places. You know, the way I create the work could also be digital, so I can carry that around. And a lot of the pieces I first, some of them, a fair amount of them, I designed first on computer and three D modeling programs, and that's the way to determine lighting placement. Now, you've talked about 
Um, but there was another question I forgot. Oh, I have. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm about ready to forget. That had to do with um, thinking and feeling when it comes to art. And when do you do this work? Meaning, where do you find time to be the artist? Well, are you nurturing the artist? Oh, yeah. Is the artist well, alive and well? It's always alive and well. Right? <laughs> At least the last time I checked. <laughs> but the thing is that I... Uh, you know, I mean, uh, and it, I, it's like you're never stopping an artist. It's just like never stop being who you are to a certain extent. So art then comes into the company. Oh, that's what the question was about the company. Yeah, so so it, it shows up in the company too because it takes a certain kind of artistic sensibility to do what we do. And the company, Unified Field, is an interactive multimedia and uh, strategic innovation firm. And, you know, of course, we work with museums, we work with uh, corporations, we do these experience design, you know, especially digital media, you know, so in all those instances, it's not just you're building an airplane reservation system, but you're building something that people use for, you know, exhibits, interactive exhibits or other things. So, so all of this really works really well together. Yeah. It's all really hand in hand, and you've been able to create a life for yourself that really um, exploits your passions in a lot of, and also helps you to realize a lot. Yeah, you totally. know, so so that's commendable. And I'm sure there are many artists that would love to be sitting in your place, but I'm sure it took a whole lot of hard work to get to where yeah, you are, too. Yeah, a lot too. of work, but okay. I'm sure there's also artists that like to be sitting in their place. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's one, say half a dozen of one. But the other thing I want to say is that, and I think what's probably going to happen is that I think now they're somewhat separate to a certain extent. You know what we're doing, what I'm doing at Unified Field, the kind of projects we're doing, and uh, what I'm doing in the sculpture and paint, you know, painting, uh, prints and such. At some point along the line, they not just influence each other, but they're going to merge. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if we do major commissions that has some kind of programming, I have a programming staff that can program it. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. know, or for example, there's, uh, for example, the, one of the software packages I use is called Rhino, where they do a lot of very interesting things with it. it you could have, uh, you could do things parametrically, which basically means that some parts of the design could be programmed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know, I then have people who can do that. Now we're going to uh, move into um, this whole idea of Brooklyn and the new renaissance. So talk to us a bit about what you see as the new renaissance. And then let's talk about how that translates to a Brooklyn experience as an artist. Wow. <laughs> no, it's a great question. So okay, sorry. Well, I think I think the thing about the new Renaissance is that maybe because I was so embedded in digital technology and CAD and digital fabrication and whatever it is, and at the same time though have a very strong classical background in painting and art. You know, I was a sculpture and photography major at Cooper, uh, and primarily a draftsman. That's my that's where I'm grounded in. That um, you know, I was always interested in like what is art that's uniquely of our time. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, if you look at a lot of uh, major museum websites and foundation websites of how they describe contemporary art, the definition is that is art made it in our time. And to me, that's a low bar because it's nothing unique about it. If, if art, to a certain extent, in some aspect or, or some forms, is a snapshot or, or not so much a documentation of a, our times, but you know, is particularly of our time, then what makes it so? For example, that you really couldn't do work that was photography-based until you had photography, or you couldn't do oil painting until they invented it. Right? 
So I think we have this whole uh, plethora of, of tools and materials and things that were just barely scratching the surface of, of how to do these unique forms of art. And you're starting to see a lot of people who are doing this, you know, people like Tower Alba Back and people like uh, Carson Nikolai and probably have a dozen or so more of these people who are starting to push the boundaries with this. And uh, I think it's an interesting confluence. You know, it's almost like the digital combined with the humanities, if you will. And in terms of the Brooklyn scene with so much going on with tech and innovation, meaning we are looked at as, I think, the second largest sector or perhaps the uh, or number one in tech startups and innovation yeah, kinds of I firms. Yeah, I think it's number two. So, so how do you think that is going to um, influence or impact local artists I think I think usually because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just think they haven't, you know, I think a lot of these things haven't come together yet and just starting to. And I think part of the challenges, and again, this goes back to the work that you and I are doing with the Brooklyn Arts Council as a, as a connector, if you will, as a place for co-creation and stuff like that, is there not quite yet the infrastructure for these kind of higher level developments, if you will. Right. The pieces are all there and you're starting to things like, you know, these different kind of incubators and different kind of new lab and what's happening with Pratt. And, you know, it's also the home to, you know, uh, I don't know what the percentage is, but uh, I'm sure a huge percentage of the, uh, you know, successful, better known artists in the world. Right. Now, let's take a look at social media. Right. And it was interesting because someone said to me, and I was surprised to hear it come from this particular person because they were young, but maybe that's why they said this, that, oh, art is everywhere. People are selling art all over social media. Look at Twitter, on Facebook. It, it, the way that art is distributed now and sold is vastly different from any time before. What would you, what would you say to something like that? And well, how important is a social media presence? Huge. Mm-hmm. I think it's used. I mean, there are people who have careers that are driven by the sales they do on Instagram. There's a fair number of those people. And uh, but I think I think on it depends. You know, I mean, it depends what the type of work, kind of work, and how, the price level and things like that. You know, most of the major stuff is still at a certain price point sold in galleries because it's high touch business to a certain mm-hmm. extent. Uh, but you find people like you know Sotheby's or like Christie's or you know. Sachi and Sachi selling work on, on online. How do you put a value on your work? Meaning, value work. and that's a, that's a problem for many artists because I think the reason that people might even want to under might want to pay less than it's worth is because they don't really understand what it took to get it there. They don't understand the well, process. Right, but those are not your collectors. Right, right, right. but I mean. You know, no, it's let, let, let's it's develop the audience. Yeah. Let's develop. Let's develop those who want to be collectors. But well, sometimes you don't collect because you're like, no, no, totally. But that's <laughs> that's two separate issues. But the thing, the pricing work is always is always it's more voodoo than anything else. And I think it was interesting because I had lunch with a, a friend of mine who is a, one of the number three top people at Sotheby's about pricing work. And to a certain extent, he thinks you know price it the way you think you should price it. That was his answer. Because I asked him, mm-hmm. but I think the best thing to do is to look around with comparable work. You know, for example, what is certain kind of prints? And again, you have to be judicious about it because you can see these you know, glisse prints, and they're selling for hundred dollars, but that's ridiculous because you can't make money of that. So I think the first thing you got to make sure that you count in everything when you do the pricing. 
not just materials and stuff like that, but, but your, your time. time, right? Which is they, that gets mm-hmm. left out a lot. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's also good to price a little higher than you're comfortable. Right? And not get crazy. Right. You know, I, I signed with this group, uh, our consultant, and it was interesting because he, she said that she has this guy, he comes out of the diamond trade or something like that, and he's retired. And he happens to have a, a really strong talent for painting, but he thinks he's the next, you know, Jackson Pollock. Hmm. You know, and he wants to sell this work for sixty thousand dollars. You know, ridiculous for you know he's still an emerging artist. You know, maybe eight ten thousand is realistic, or fifteen. It's still pushing it, but sixty is ridiculous. So you have to be realistic. I think it's the other part about it. I, and I'm also thinking about the art world, and understanding how it works and it, sometimes when you go to a conversation or to a salon and they're talking about art and it's like can we speak in English what is with all this yeah it's like art speak all over the place and I think that more people would be drawn to purchasing art if you left feeling like you understood what the heck was just said well, this, I mean, it's like it's just too much of it, and then and then I don't think it's incredibly welcoming. There is no, an not. elite snooty thing that goes on that is off-putting to large numbers of people, which does not serve the art world to me in totality. Well, it doesn't serve it doesn't serve the audience, the inclusiveness of the audience. That's where it doesn't serve. Mm-hmm. It serves the art world in the sense mm-hmm. that it it gives this kind of rarity to it, and that if you don't know, you know kind of thing and I think they like it that way and to a certain extent uh, part of it comes from the fact that it's very difficult to describe a visual medium in words that takes a particular talent and I think there's also the some of it comes from art criticism you know which is a f- field of philosophy in of itself which is pretty opaque but uh, I hear there are changes in art criticism too that oh, it's oh I'm sure they are yeah that it's that's what the hell he's talking about right to be sincere, right. like, you know, it's interesting because I think I, millennials are waking up. Yeah, I think I think there's hope. There's mm-hmm. some bright lights, and it's interesting because I I had to do uh, for a grant. I had to write up a, uh, an art statement, mm-hmm. you know, and I, you have to do it some that people could read and make sense and really get what you're trying to do with the work. Part of what we talked about. So I asked my sister, who's a very good writer, for help, and I sent her some examples. And after she reading two or three of them, she calls me back and says, like, I got to tell you, man, after I read the first two sentences, I want to stick a fork in my eye. <laughs> so, but that's, you know, that's part for the cause. And, you know, I think, I think they're really doing a disservice to a certain extent. And, and, and maybe because the work, there's not much inner work or something, or it's difficult to describe it. But, you know, you, you look at the work and you look at what people are talking about, it, and it's like, I often find myself, and, you know, I'm a, independent journalist myself and I write a lot and stuff like that and I'm an artist and I know what I know a thing or two and I have no idea what they're talking about so, so you know I don't know I think this you know another aspect of it is like you know art museums who are struggling with attendance because they have a great audience have a compelling market need to make the audiences more inclusive make art more inclusive they're just not good at it and and at the moment I think that I don't understand why that's such a challenge for these institutions, meaning well, look, did you look out, right? It's like look outside, look at where you sit, and make people feel welcome. You know, make make your exhibit something that resonates with people. But when they walk through that door, make them feel welcome. Well, I mean, you look at who's running it. You look at the curators and look at the people who are the directors and the people who give the money to it. And it's sort of a certain, 
you know, group, if you will. So most people... Have, but you see this transforming, though. You see oh, major, a disruption. Major. Well, yeah. But first of all, we're seeing a lot of more attention to, you know, artists of color and women, mm-hmm. you know, people who are from places like Africa, which I think is great. I think the other thing about it is that, um, just you know, it's a weird, there's weird dynamics. So, for example, uh, I think it was the Guggenheim did a show on motorcycles. You know, so they're starting to, to, to expand what the definition of art is. And, you know, there was a lot of people in the art world who were just, you know, this was an affront to them. You know, because lowering the standards, all this other BS. There's always this standard thing. So who decides? I mean, I think about what's happening in New York City now with the mayor's initiative around Create NYC. And and it's all about diversity and inclusion. And I, I think to some degree it also has to do with respect. You know, the idea that you respect another person's culture, you you respect their sensibilities. I have a brother-in-law that must have a half a million dollar African art uh, collection. Right. And I've often said to him, listen, why don't you take pieces and, and write them up and put yourself a book together? He just kind of hoards it to himself, you know. Yeah. But, well, but again, another kind of art, it's called primitive and but that but that is a sensibility, you know. That's well, all a part of. That's interesting. Yeah. So here's the thing. <laughs> but what is that, right? So you think about it. It's so when the expressionists came out, the impressionists, not the expressionists, when the impressionists came out in Paris. You know, there was a brouhaha because they were savages and like you know. So it's like it's all perspective to a certain mm-hmm. extent. The same thing with pop art. You know, it's like you know here was this lowbrow, highbrow thing that was really brilliant take on visual perception and culture, but you know. When it first came out, it was people were flipping out about it. So it's people always flipping out about it's, something. It, it, it's like by making it more accessible, perhaps you would make it lose its value. Questionable. Because you know. to me, that would be a basic capitalist move. You know, oh, if it's not expensive, it's not worth it. Yeah. Well, uh-huh. it's perceptual. I mean, uh-huh. you know. What do you mean by perceptual? It's, you know, why is a particular painting worth $200 million? You know, Please, tell right. me. Well, because it's what the market, you know, it's the market, it's, the, it's supply and demand. It's what the market's perception of what the value of the work is. You know, I had a friend of mine, she's from California, she ran an arts organization there, and she's an artist, and she was saying, like, you know, well, why can't they just split it around, you know, $20 million pay, piece and, you know, give it to 10 artists. Like, you know, it's, it's not altruistic. It's an it's a, it's a aspect of the art world that's really, it's an asset class to a certain extent, you know, whether we like it or not. Is it even such an asset class to the point at which a lot of the major artworks in the world, not only just contemporary, but also, you know, uh, classical art and, you know, Rembrandt and such, they're sitting in warehouses in, in Switzerland. There's right. like billions of dollars of artwork sitting in free ports in Geneva and in Basel that nobody's seeing. Hmm. I mean, a thousand Picassos and, you know. Hmm. Right? Because it's an asset. Ah, you know, right? get, getting back to the, the dollars and cents around this because I was l- looking at a show and I won't mention the name of the show because I don't know what the, the rights are around it, but uh, it's, a, it's a gallery owner, you know, mm-hmm. and I learned a lot. 
you know, right. and, and perhaps that's the kind of exposure that people need. You know, it was really quite interesting. She was representing this new this artist and somehow or another the artist was stolen because they were so hot and another gallery is now right. representing. So there's a whole uh, what do I call it a subculture or, or, or a business around this that I think many oh, huge, people huge. don't really think about unless you're in that world. Well, I think I think it's I think it's that. And I think there's also like, that's why I say, you know, art's got multiple dimensions to, to mm -hmm. it. And some things artists like it, don't like about it. And people like it, don't like about it. In fact, you know, there was this famous dealer, I think his name is David McGee, who stopped, closed his gallery because he found that the artwork, art world was less collegial and less honest. And he represented people like Philip Guston and stuff like that. But, you know, whether we like it or not, there is this huge industry surrounding this multi-billion dollar you know, market. And, you know, there are people now and companies now that actually operate like financial, financial data, you know, strategists and stuff. And, you know, and, you know, it's this whole world about it. So that's why I say, you know, when artists, again, going back to the thing we talked about myths and something about mm -hmm. is that you have to be at least cognizant of that because huh. that's the world you're in to a certain extent. Well, this has been really quite insightful. It's mm -hmm. so obvious to me that you have lived a very rich life because of art and technology and just the whole the whole thing. So anyway, now oh, 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 one yeah, sure, one last thing. Now, this this podcast Art Moves, why? Why Art Moves? Well, I think the reason is one because the things we talked about that we've that you know why should not art be more inclusive, you know why shouldn't we also take the thinking of creativity and bring it to a broader audience and how it could empower people who may or may not be artists, you know how do we also uh, um, work with the innate creative ingenuity of different neighborhoods, if you will, that you know may not have the avenues that they should have, and I think we want to make art more accessible. I think the other thing, too, is to promote this idea of, like, you know, what's the new frontiers in art? And you know, I, how, do we move, yeah. how do we move art into the future? And I think that it's very important that we develop an appreciation for other art. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, we live in a borough that has over 100, I think it was 150 ethnic groups. Let's start appreciating what other people are doing and find space and our view of the world to be able to accept it. Because I think that art is, in so many ways, it is spiritual. Yeah. And it opens up that part of your of your life. It opens up that part of your, and I'm just gonna spiritual being. And to be able to be broad in our appreciation of it, I think just makes the world a, just a better place. Oh, totally. And you think about it, that's where the, I think this Sounds is Sounds cliche, but it does. Nah, but it does. Really. I mean, it's, it, anything can be sound cliche, but I think the thing about it, what you're saying is that uh, I think there's one of the avenue for inclusiveness because that's, why, why not broaden the definition of what is art? And, you know, you could see it in something like the Indianapolis Museum of Art where the new director is doing new fields you know, doing things like putting tea gardens. So now he's saying art could also be culinary arts. Why not? But, you know, he's getting a lot and of... And we're going to get into hair art. The hair art? Why not? No. <laughs> My hair is purple and I've got dreads. But that's the beauty <laughs> That's the beauty about the power of art because it's really about human experience. It's some way to express and to visualize and to, you know, 
take the not- just noticeable difference of artists who have a very fine-tuned sense of things and bring it into a broader public so they can appreciate the world in a different way. I think that's a good definition of art right there. So this is a great place to close. I'm going to yeah. let you do that, Eli. So I'm going to say that I'd say go out and find some art that moves you and find someone to share it with. 